Thanks, worship team, for leading us this morning, and thanks especially, Val, for joining us on piano. <clears throat> I was thinking about, uh, as we sang that last song, I Surrender All, thinking about how uh, so often we're invited to surrender all, or there's certain limits we have to bring in order to surrender all. You must be so high to ride a roller coaster, or so rich, or so talented, or uh, have so much goodness about you. But when we, come to, uh, when we come to worship, it's like Henrik said this morning in the announcements, there's no bar for how good of a singer you have to be or how good of a person you have to be. When we, when we give our all, God welcomes us and receives us. And sometimes, uh, especially as I think about the sermon this morning, I remember that all we have to give feels like nothing. Sometimes all we have to give is grief and loss and emptiness. So what then? Well, this morning I'm thankful to be back in the pulpit after some time away. Many of you know I had a week uh, in February off for grief leave after the sudden death of a friend. But I've been doing a lot of work in the past three weeks as well, though I haven't been able to preach. And so uh, I'm excited and thankful to be back and to continue our sermon series, How Long? and wonder with you about grief and loss, and about how we might know God within it. This uh, is not a sermon about my grief, but instead I want to recognize in this season how so many of us, it seems to me, carry griefs. Some of us are mourning the death of loved ones. Some of us are facing unrelenting diagnoses. Some of us feel that God is far off, or like our prayers hit the ceiling. Others of us wonder about our personal value or our purpose. Sometimes grief feels acute and sharp. It's right there. It's all we can think about. Other times grief is just an underlying kind of dull pain. But as we begin this morning, I think we should wonder why grief exists. Why is our world this way? Christians have a unique answer to the question of why grief exists. A secular person or uh, most people who are not Christians might answer the question this way. They might say something like, well, life has no meaning. Everything comes to an end. And then maybe they despair and sort of fall into nihilism, which is to say, well, nothing's real, nothing matters. Or maybe they say, well, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You only live once, that kind of attitude. But between or beyond natural death and natural phenomena like earthquakes or hurricanes, many people, even some Christians, are quick to blame others and to leave it at that. We might think that grief and loss exist because there are good people in the world and uh, bad people. Bad people hurt good people and sometimes even bad things happen to good people. If that's the way that we approach the world, then unfortunately the best thing that we can offer one another is to try to be good, try to avoid grief and pain, try not to end up like bad people. But Christians answer this question very differently. Whether we begin with the New City Catechism and say, my only comfort is that I belong to God, which is very similar to the Heidelberg Catechism's answer, or if we simply look at the creation story and the end of the story in Revelation, Christians begin at a place that recognizes not only 
individual sin, not only that uh, people do do things that are wrong, that people do sin, but Christians also recognize that everything and every person in our world is touched by brokenness and touched by sin. In short, things are not the way they're supposed to be. Not in our hearts, not in the world. Put another way, sin and sinfulness touches everything in our world. Whether it's personal sin, or the brokenness of our world, the sinfulness of our world, or Satan and his demonic forces which seek to work against God's good plan and God's perfect or God's good creation and his perfect plan. Our grief, then, for all people, but especially for Christians, our grief is a very personal response to some aspect of the brokenness in our world. We grieve different things because we are different people with different stories. We each are, and all are unique with different gifts, different abilities, different passions, different hopes and purposes for our lives. So we make different choices. Different things hurt us. Sometimes and even often we hurt one another. So, so now what? Please know that I haven't forgotten about the, the sermon text. We're getting there. Some of you are just on your, on your seats waiting for that. What do we do with grief? Why grief exists is an important question. But as we get to meet in, into the meat of this sermon, I want to answer now what? Now what do we do? The amazing and wonderful thing about God's people, about all people, because each of us are created in God's image, we always have a choice. We always have the freedom to choose what to do with our grief. We can either hide or flee, try and disconnect or run away from our grief, or we can choose to face it, to engage with it. As children, many of us have imaginary friends. We interact with the world in a creative and wonder-filled way. That's why we invite our kids to wave flags and why we have Sunday school and Jacob's Ladder for them because we want to foster that creativity and that joy. But I read somewhere recently that as we grow in the West, we're generally taught to be less artistic, less creative, and less imaginative. This is apparently required for dealing with the harsh realities of our world, with the grief and pain and loss. We might even be pressured or encouraged by loved ones to pursue jobs in science or technology or business, not because those are good good fields, and they are, but because we think that if we can make money, be successful, and gain power and influence in our society, then we can avoid grief and pain. There's, of course, a lot of good that you can do with money and power and success. But it's a problem and it's wrong if we think that these things can buffer us or protect us from grief or pain or loss. Having more money often doesn't mean more freedom. It means more work to manage more money. Having success means that you're often approached by others, even asked for for help to share or lead. Having success or power means that you have more responsibility, more burdens, 
It means you can't just go out and enjoy yourself. Someone's always watching or checking or judging. It's good, of course, to pursue all of these things. But it's wrong to think that in pursuing them, we can outrun grief. This is a very long introduction to our, to, uh, before we get to the sermon text. And I say all this because, of course, we know that a lot has changed between the world of the Bible that we read about and our world today. Our text for this morning tells the story of King David and Bathsheba, actually the story of the prophet Nathan coming to King David after um, what happens with Bathsheba. When we read a story like this Old Testament story, we're often tempted to think that this is so far removed that we struggle to see any relevance. But I've taken all this time to introduce the topic of grief because in many ways, people are always people. King David was the most powerful man in the land. He had everything. He had money. He had success. He had power. And he sees a beautiful woman across the rooftops from his palace. And because everything belongs to him, he takes her for himself too. He takes her into his bed and she becomes pregnant. Only later he realizes that this woman, Bathsheba, has a husband. And so David tries to trick this man and dishonor him. After that doesn't work, David puts Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, in harm's way, where he organizes for Uriah to accidentally die so that David can take Bathsheba into his house permanently so that no one will know what David has done. David thinks that his money and power and success will protect him from grief and loss and pain, that they will give him everything that he needs. This is where God's word picks up in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 25. And the Lord, after this, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan's the prophet. When Nathan came to him, he said, let me tell you a story. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. Well, the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. The poor man raised that ewe lamb and it grew up with him and his children. It shared food and drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was, it was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the meal for the traveler who had come to see him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that had belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against this man, and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing, because he had no pity. Then Nathan says to David, You are the man. You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I, God, anointed you king over Israel. I, God, delivered you from the hand of Saul. I, God, gave you your master's house to you, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this had been been too little, I would have given you even more. So why? 
do you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me, God, and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted. He spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground. But he refused. He was not He would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, well, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child has died? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and they realized, he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After having washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at at his request, they served him food, and he ate it. His attendants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. David responded, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved Solomon, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. So far, the reading of God's word. Now, I know that we don't normally read the Bible this way, but I wanted to put the sermon text here to show you and illustrate to you how David's choice was to hide and to flee further and further from God. When we read these Bible stories, sometimes we forget that they're not just stories or, or they're, they're not really uh, morals or fables. These are stories of real people who are acting and affecting the lives of other real people. David could have made other choices. Who knows what God would have done or how this story would have continued if David would have engaged more fully with the reality of his sin. 
Instead, David shows that his sackcloth and ashes, his regrets, are really only regrets. When David doesn't get what he wants, he gets up and moves on. David is, unfortunately, the perfect example of an instance of withdrawing from grief, withdrawing from loss. He can't or won't face what he's done, and so he continues to live with his pain. This is God's promise to him, not God's punishment for him, not God's prescription for him, in other words, but God's description of what will happen, because David is more interested in the consequences of his actions. But God is more interested in David's heart. This is why God always challenges us to engage with grief, with loss, with pain, and with our own sin. Because God is far more interested in our hearts and in ourselves than God is in our situation. That's not to say that God doesn't care about our situation. That's simply to say that God knows what's most important. If we're not going to withdraw from grief or from loss, then we can choose to engage within it or to engage it. Engaging grief and loss is what Nathan does in this story. Nathan uses this fake story as there wasn't a real, she- a real shepherd or a real rich man and a real man with only one sheep. David uses this story, or excuse me, Nathan uses this story to say something real and true about David and the world. Nathan tells the story of what happens. He names the hurt and the sin. Nathan speaks on behalf of God and grants forgiveness to David. And then he gives David a chance to choose whether to renew his relationship with God or to withdraw, to continue to go his own way. I talk about uh, engaging in terms of forgiveness. Nathan granting forgiveness. Because I've been convinced by a book by Bishop Desmond Tutu that the only way to fully engage with grief and loss in our lives is to walk the path of forgiveness. When we remove grief or we run from grief or we hide from grief, we allow pain and sin to proliferate in our lives and in our world. But when we engage with grief, which is a harder path, It's the only way that we can deal with it and release it and ensure that it will not dictate or direct the rest of our lives. Which leads, perhaps, to the next question. If we're going to choose to engage with grief and with loss in our lives, then how long do we have to do it? Right? How long do we have to really walk through sin and suffering? In our story, the Bible tells us that David comforted Bathsheba. And that part of that comfort was the birth of Solomon. Solomon's name comes from a Hebrew word that means to replace or to restore. So some of what the story is trying to tell us is that Solomon was God's restoration for the child who died. 
But those of you who are mothers and fathers can tell me better than I can tell you whether one child can restore the grief and the loss of another. I know there are families who have been overjoyed with the birth of a child after many miscarriages or a stillborn child. Of course, they do not forget their other children, but God restores their grief. Yet in other cases, many people never fully recover from the grief or loss of a loved one. Christians accept that because there is sin in the world, there is also death. We grieve, and in many ways, we grieve even more deeply than others. Because we know from the creation of the world and the end of the Bible, we know how the world is supposed to be. We know better than others how dramatically different the world is from how it's supposed to be. But as Paul reminds Christians in 1 Corinthians, we grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. As many things happen to us in life, we will always have the choice of whether to let these things define us or whether to listen and look to God and ask God to redefine us again. Brothers and sisters, you may have experienced grief and loss. You may know trauma. You may be falsely accused or have been judged or mistreated. Will you be defined by what has happened to you? Will you be defined by other people's perceptions of you? Or will you allow God to define you and to redefine you? In the pain and loss and grief of our lives, God always challenges us to focus and refocus our hearts on what is most important. This is what David did not do, but what all of us are invited to do. And this is what the Bible is for. This is the per- God's purpose in giving us the Bible, so that we might know the story of God's relationship with his people And so that we might see again and again, and in many different ways, how God wants to build a relationship with us, how God wants to have our relationship with him be the determining factor in our lives. We know in many ways how the big and popular stories of Scripture point to God. Point our hearts to God. But even the most obscure parts of the Bible can also point us to God. The story of David and Bathsheba is picked up one more time in the Bible after, uh, after 2 Samuel chapter 12. It's picked up in Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. It starts before the story of David starts and it ends after the story of David starts. This is what it says. Solomon the father, was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Ruth. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was... Excuse me, I'm going to start this over. Solomon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa and on and on and on until Jesus. 
It would be saying far too much to say that Solomon was a full replacement or restoration for David and Bathsheba's grief. As I said, we don't hear about these two as a couple again until 2,000 years later when Matthew includes Bathsheba in his genealogy of Jesus. Perhaps the Bible wants to remind us, to remind you, even in something as simple as a genealogy, that justice and deliverance and hope that Bathsheba needed, that Jesus needed, or that David needed, excuse me, and even that you need, can be found only in Jesus. When I ask what meaning is there to find while we wait, and then I immediately say, Jesus, there's a real danger that you will leave thinking that your pastor, me, or both your pastors even, aren't really acquainted with grief and suffering. That we offer such a simple response, perhaps because we don't fully get it. So allow me to elaborate just a little longer this morning. First, finding meaning in grief is not first about our situation, but it is about our relationships. In grief, we find that we are not as in control of our lives as we thought. You could put this another way too and say that grief reminds us that we are never in control of our lives as much as we think. If you're familiar with the stages of grief, then you know that um, stage one and three of grief are denial and then bargaining. Both denial and bargaining are about trying to change our situation. But when you go through steps two and four and five, anger, depression, and acceptance, these actually face the reality of our situation. They wonder about our identity and our place within it. The the end of grief or or the, the, the telos where grief leads us is not to try to change our situation. We might begin by saying, I wish this were different. Or I I'd want to close my eyes and believe that it's not, that this is not the case. I wish she was still here. I wish he hadn't done that. But we end realizing that what we want is more time in the everyday realities with the ones who we love. Not some beautiful or perfect vacation just to get away from it all. Grief reminds us of the value of relationships over everything else. Not only relationships with the people we love, but also relationships with the God who loves us. This is also to say that we can find healing and hope and meaning even in the darkest and most horrible situations. You can see on the screen behind me a book written by Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning. Since the 1950s or 60s, this continues to be a bestseller year over year. Viktor Frankl tells his experience as a Jew in Nazi concentration camps, how even in one of the darkest periods of, our, of modern history, how he found beauty, hope, and peace. Meanwhile, many celebrities and powerful people in our world chase after the life of King David. 
They live like kings themselves and yet find themselves in cycles of addiction, frustration, and relationship problems. Grief always grows until we turn to God, until we address that most important relationship in our lives. This has always been the case for us, all the way back to ancient people. The largest ancient civilization near to the Israelites, the, uh, the Assyrians, later the Babylonians, who took, is, took the Israelites into slavery, or into exile, excuse me. We know some of their laws. They were guided for a few thousand years by something called the Code of Hammurabi, one of their leaders. And that code included a huge number of instructions about justice, about what should be done in the case of wrong and evil. And many of those amounted to what we think of today as, quote, an eye for an eye. This is still the practice that's followed by many of our courts today, though thankfully not literally. If someone sins or does wrong in society, they're punished in an equal and commensurate way. If they steal, they might be fined equivalent to the money they stole, maybe more. If they murder, they have to surrender many years of their life, maybe even their whole life, in prison. But this is not the justice nor the meaning that the Bible has for us. It falls short. Real justice happens when what was taken is returned, when what was lost is found, when what was removed is restored. The problem with grief is that we can't do it on our own. Last year, I watched an interview of a, with an African-American mother crying out for justice after her son was killed in a mass shooting. The person who committed that crime was sentenced to many lifetimes in prison. But that mother still has to face life without her son. Our world can't remove or can't restore what was removed. Our world can't always return what was taken or find what was lost. David, King David, in our story asks, he says, now that my son is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David's cynicism is typical of all of us today. We imagine that justice is impossible, that finding meaning again is impossible. And so we are so often and easily tempted to walk away, to disengage. And we multiply grief and sin and pain in our own lives and in the lives of others. Faith recognizes and faces scenarios Faith in God recognizes and faces scenarios where there is no immediate answer, where there is no miraculous escape, where there is no last-minute check in the mail, and even no apology. When there's no answer to our questions and no quick end to our struggle, does it mean that it's all meaningless? Brothers and sisters, I will strongly say no. Real loss 
happens when a space is opened up in our hearts, when something is removed or taken from us. But real meaning happens when that space is filled once again. When what was taken is returned, when what was lost is found, when what was removed is restored. Our world cannot do that. But our God can. And He will. And He does. Sometimes God delivers us from pain in the moment. Sometimes God disciples us through pain or even disciplines us, it feels, through pain. But always He is with us. And as one of my favorite theologians, Karl Barth, says, even God's no to us in the moment always sets us up for God's yes in eternity. This is a wonder that is worth any and every struggle in our broken world. It's a wonder that reaches beyond our basic questions about grief and loss and the problem of evil. This is what I mean when I say that Christians, yes, have more reason than anyone to grieve the brokenness and sin and evil of our world, but also that Christians have more reason than anyone to hope for a better world, to proclaim the reality of a better way, and to devote every minute of our lives to knowing God and to seeking and celebrating his coming kingdom. The author of Hebrews reminds us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us in our weakness, and I would add in our grief. But we do have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I'm tempted, I was tempted to end the sermon there, but I want to say just one more thing before we close. I've been talking this morning mostly to people who are grieving, but I want to say one more thing to people, those of you who love people who are grieving, even if you're not grieving yourself. As a pastor, I have the honor of walking alongside many people who grieve for many different reasons. Most publicly and obviously, as a congregation, you see me and uh, other leaders walking alongside people when they've lost a loved one in a funeral. There's so much other kinds of grief just in our congregation. Especially when grief is acute, when it's sharp and heavy in our hearts. One of the greatest complaints, anger and hurt that I hear from people who are grieving is this. Listen up, this is what they say. They say, somebody told me everything happens for a reason. Somebody told me that it's all going to be okay. And that's not what I want to hear. Somebody told me you just need some time to figure it out. Those kinds of comments from those of you who love deeply people who are grieving is not a loving thing to say. If you're caring for someone who's grieving, please don't say those kinds of things. And here's why. Because when we grieve, 
we long not to hear that everything will be okay. When we grieve, we long to experience that everything will be okay. So when someone shares kind and well-intentioned words when a loved one grieves, what we do is we draw more attention to that gap. That gap between our knowledge of the way the world is supposed to be and our lived experience that it's not that way. When we say those kind of things attempted to, to smooth things over, we make the pain of our loved ones more acute. And what's more, they might even feel like their friend, their loved one, isn't with them in their grief. That you're far away, you're over here in the world where everything's the way it's supposed to be, but they're stuck living in the world where things are broken. Let me tell you one more story and then we'll close in prayer. As I said last month, Kaylee and my dear friend died in Spain suddenly, and I went with the blessing from our church leaders. I was very thankful for that. I went to see his body, to find closure for myself, but also to sit with his wife, with Andrew's wife, Gerda, to sit with their family and friends. Sitting with people in grief is a universal human experience. When we grieve, other people come and sit with us. Jews sit Shiva, it's called. Shiva is a Hebrew word for seven. They grieve for seven days. It was just St. Patrick's Day. Maybe some of you know that Irish people have a wake. They stay awake all night and remember the person who has died. Every culture, every community has their own variation and their own way. But always it seems we gather together and we sit together when someone dies. And so last month I traveled to Spain and I did a lot of sitting. I sat on the plane for hours. I sat in Andrew and Gerda's living room and laughed and cried with her. I sat in the funeral home. I sat at the church service. And all the while I sat, I wondered, why do we do this? Why do we come even from great distances just to sit together? And then I realized, we do it because we learned it from God. Whether it's consciously a choice we make as Christians or simply just an inviolable part of being an image bearer of God, we go great distances in grief and in loss to sit with those who are hurting because this is what God did with us. While we were dead in our sins, Christ came and sat with us, lived with us. And Paul tells us that we always carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might also be revealed in our bodies. We go and we sit with others in their grief so that God who is in us might also sit with them. So we do not need to feel pressure to say anything, to comfort, or to solve. God himself will give the right words in supernatural ways when the time is right. When we love others who are grieving, we need only to go and to be with them, to testify in our bodies to the presence and the knowledge of God with them and the love of God with them. Friends, I look forward to the day when 
I will finally see the friend who has been walking with me every day and sitting with me every day of my life. I will not meet him then, but I will know him then. I will go to him and know him, and he will return to me. David, King David, believed that his son would not return. But Jesus, his son, his descendant, did return and will return again. For David, for Bathsheba, for you and for me. Let's pray. God, we have sat here this morning a little longer than we normally do. We've sat here because you sit with us, because we long to be with you. We've gathered here this morning because you have drawn us and you have moved in our hearts during this Lenten season to continue to wonder how long we have to suffer, worry, wonder, and walk through grief and loss. Father, we know that we do not always get immediate or easy answers to our prayer. We are human. We experience grief and pain and loss. But because we also are loved by you, may those of us gathered here and those of us, or those who are loved by those of us gathered here, God, may we experience your presence with us, your love for us, and the right words from your Holy Spirit spoken to our hearts at the right time, that we might know not only death, but also the life and love that is present and more powerful than death. In Jesus, our Lord's precious name we pray. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.